Never trust a big butt and a smile. Wise words, right? It was 1990 and the song Poison by Belle Biv DeVoe was everywhere. A massively successful up-tempo party jam a few years after the members of New Edition briefly went their separate ways. BBD were suddenly at the forefront of New Jack Swing with this inescapable infectious bop. Often hailed as a song that reinvented the New Jack Swing sound. When I think of 1990, it is absolutely the first song that comes to mind. You can play this song right now and folks will stop what they're doing to dance or sing at the top of their lungs. Yes, there are other songs of the past that will still get people excited, but folks just act different when this comes on. It excites them in a way I can't even describe. And in 1990, I was mesmerized watching the video. They were just so cool. The fashion, the style, the attitude. They were transforming the culture and my friends and I all wanted to dance like them. The boys wanted to look like them. Looking back, I realized nothing on radio at the time sounded like Poison. It was R&B, it was hip hop, it was soul, it was pop, and it felt incredibly refreshing in a way nothing before it had. When we talk about cultural touchstones, shifts in sound, when we talk about lineage in R&B, when we talk about timeless classics, we have to talk about what Poison did in 1990. Clips of 1990 play in my mind simply to remind me I was there. A glimpse of my mom's handwriting on a VHS label, noting the first episodes of In Living Color, certainly to be watched again at leisure, struggle mornings preparing for the five minute walk to second grade, and the ever present vibration of the stereo, larger than life for a kid losing their baby teeth. It felt like a year of transformation and sweet familiarity. Anita Baker still had it. When I first heard Talk To Me one fall morning before school, I felt this quirky sense of energy that lifted me towards a new sense of appreciation I was developing for the jazzy R&B that didn't quite sync with the tides of the new Jack sound. I loved both fervently, however. And looking back, I'm grateful that this decade, in my opinion, was the most prosperous period for the genre. This sound aquarium, a maze that you didn't quite want to get out of. And its current cast of R&B artists that I vibe with that pull their identities from this decade. I am writer and professor Ashley Blackwell. I'm screenwriter and music lover Robin Cheney. And this is Rhythm and Schooled. Breaking down 90s R&B, one year at a time. Episode 1. 1990, let me take you on an escapade. Some highlights from 1990 start with February 16th, and the album Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd is certified 11 times platinum. It was first released in March 24, 1973. On March 1st, Janet Jackson kicks off her Rhythm Nation 1990 tour in Miami, Florida. April 14th, a Tribe Called Quest releases their debut album, People's Instinctive Travels and Paths of Rhythm. June 21st, Los Angeles, California declares and celebrates Little Richard Day at City Hall. Sidebar, I just recently did an Instagram story about that time when Little Richard was at the Grammys and he was on stage with David Johansson of the New York Dolls. And when he talks about the best new artist is, he goes, me. (laughs) And he was like, you ain't never give me no Grammy. You never do nothing. I was the architect of rock and roll and everyone applauded, but everyone should have been giving him his Grammy. Exactly. 
he deserved. Um, and I just, I, that's not the first time I've seen that clip, but I, I really, really love it and appreciate, I love that appreciate, I love that <laughs> little Richard appreciated himself and also knew, mm-hmm. knew his worth basically. And that's why I've always loved him. And I, of course, I love his music as well. On July 2nd, the Italian Catholic Church attempts to stop Madonna from performing in Rome on her Blind Ambition tour because of her use of crucifixes in her show. And on August 5th, the tour gained HBO its highest ratings to date. So to no surprise, the best-selling album of 1990 was Madonna's Immaculate Collection. A little bit later on, in November 19th, Millie Vanilli manager Frank Farian admitted that the singing duo were not the singers on their albums, and they were ordered by the Grammy Association to return their awards. The year-end number one song on the Billboard charts was Hold On by Wilson Phillips <laughs> that was immortalized by Harold and Kumar go to White Castle when they sang that song with each other <laughs> in the car ride in the finale. And also on Bridesmaids because they definitely sung that at like 10, I feel like 10 times at least. Yes. So the song clearly is reverberating for our generations. <laughs> which is really cool. So for 1990 non-music trivia, Driving Miss Daisy wins the Oscar for Best Film. In the fall of 1990, a man named Tim Berners-Lee created the first web server and the foundation for the World Wide Web, which we now all use. The biggest movie of 1990 was John Hughes' Home Alone, and the number one TV show is Cheers. Out of all of this trivia and these highlights from the year, what stands out to you? I'm still a huge Madonna fan. Day one fan, had the posters on the wall with Prince and Michael and Janet in New Edition. But I was just thinking like Madonna was really everywhere. And I remember uh, some of my friends and classmates, most of them probably lying about seeing the Blonde Ambition tour on HBO. And every time anyone mentions Driving Miss Daisy winning an Oscar, I just laugh. I mean, come on, right? Like Do the Right Thing is one of the greatest movies ever. And it should have won the Oscar. It is probably considered to this day one of the most impactful and influential films. And I don't hear anyone talking about Driving Miss Daisy other than discussions about magical Negroes. Or it's been parodied. Like one of my favorite (laughs) films from the early 90s is Stay Tuned. And it has John (laughs) Ritter, very young John Ritter. And he's kind of like stuck in this like television program kind of a thing. And where he's like jumping from channel to channel. And there's one where he's like on the road and he's got this like this suit on, but it looks like he's from like the 1940s or wherever. And then like you see, he sees this old woman trying to like, uh, like flag down, I think flag down like a car or whatever, but she gets ran over and the movie is apparently called Driving Over Miss Daisy. Like, oh, that's hilarious. I remember that movie too. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think. Yeah, and, and then in Living Color did a very inappropriate Yes, parody. I was going to say, I'm going to call Riding Miss Daisy. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, yeah, during that time, um, I saw Home Alone in the theater. Uh, my aunt took me and my cousins. And I remember this because it's still one of my favorite Christmas movies to this day. One of my favorite movie experiences. I mean, seeing Home Alone in the theater was absolutely amazing when you were a kid. Most of the things I remember, mostly in retrospect, because I was still very young in 1990. So, like, for example, I, I am a Madonna fan, but my heavy Madonna phase comes with right, the Ray of Light era. Going back and, like, w- watching and listening to all the stuff that I didn't listen to before and, like, and like you know, getting the albums and listening to all of them. For example... But the biggest thing that's kind of stood out was in 89 when she did like a prayer because Mm -hmm. I remember my mom and her peers were like real invested in that 
and the controversy surrounding Like a Prayer. Uh, so, so Immaculate Collection, I think, was the first album I actually bought with my own little uh, allowance money. And again, I loved all of that. And then again, I was going back and back and back and back. So all the whole tour and the HBO stuff, that was way I was not prepared and ready for that. I was too young. Obviously, I remember her stirring the pot in the media because of Like a Prayer and then kind of hearing about it and like kind of doing my own personal research because I was obsessed with her for a, very, for a while there. And of course, the singles and videos from Rhythm Nation, I think my favorite when I was a kid was All Right, the video and the song. So yeah, Janet Jackson was a big deal and I was very much immersed in that myself. Oh, she was a huge deal, right? Like, oh my gosh. Um, for me, uh, Rhythm Nation is probably my favorite Janet album. I mean, she has a lot. Of, I have a lot of favorites of Janet, but that might be might be my my favorite um, of all her albums. I still remember playing that cassette over and over again. Scared it would pop. Remember when cassettes would pop and you would have yes. all this tape running everywhere? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how much I played that Janet album out. Um, it's wild how Janet dropped that album in '89 and it stayed on the charts until 1990 and probably into 1991. I mean, albums used to have real longevity back then. Yeah, that's why it was hard, like coming up with this podcast and compiling things, because I'm just like, wait a minute, didn't that come out? That came out the previous year, but it was really charting this year and everyone was recognizing it this the year after it came out. Mm -hmm. So and I I felt the same way about Janet, because if you I think if you were to ask the average person on the street, they would go 89, 90, 91. Like they like it would they would there's no definitive year that they were probably thinking unless they were like a serious music historian or super like a Janet super fan. Right. And I feel like that's the point um, of you, of your point of saying that these albums really did have a lot of longevity. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I love that rhythm nation. It has, it's thematic and every song kind of like flows together. There's, there's different like themes going on throughout each song more or less, but the vibe, the tone, the spirit, it's all very consistent. And I and I, that's what I think, that's why I think Rhythm Nation is such a respected album to this day. Oh, yes. I mean, I mean we could talk about, we, we could actually do a podcast on just that album. That's how great it is and how, how classic and timeless, like every single song I, I absolutely love. I, I think it's truly when we talk about classic albums and essential albums in for pop and R&B, we're talking about that album. Absolutely. Millie Vanilli, that, I, I remember that being a big deal. I remember, obviously, the Live, Living Color parody. Because mm-hmm. they just, they they took everyone down a notch. Like Everybody <laughs> got some from them. Everybody got them jokes. Everyone. So, um, but also the them in the news and like, again, our or older peers and parents kind of talking about, oh, they weren't singing their songs. Mm-hmm. And even there's there's a Martin episode with one of the singers from Brownstone who was on it. I forget the, I think it's Nikki. I think that was the. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. When she was on the episode of In Living, um, not In Living Color, of Martin. And what happened? So basically, yeah, like she had lost her voice because she has been rehearsing so much because she was about to sing in front of an executive. And then Martin just goes up to her and he was like, look. He was like, listen, Millie Vanilli. Like he was trying to <laughs> he was trying to get her to lip sync on her own vocals um just to get this record deal. And I just thought that was funny. It's just, they unfortunately, Millie Vanilli, they have an unfortunate unfortunately a tragic story because they actually I think they could actually really sing, right? 
I, you know what? It, sometimes I, I, I forget all of the layers of that story, but it, it definitely is a tragic story. I do think that they were actually able to sing, but maybe they're, they didn't like the, the producers didn't like their voices. There was something about that where they had these mm-hmm. other people singing for them. But it, it was such a strange, unusual story as, as time unfolded. Yeah, I just think that's um, the saddest part. I remember everybody remembers Home Alone. That was also within the pop culture stratosphere as well. Like everyone did the hands on the face and scream. (laughs) Um, I remember it was a movie that we all really loved. For a, for a holiday family movie that with some comedy, it's a good one. It's it's still solid in my still. personal opinion. I'm still, I'm sure I would show my kids Home Alone. Listen, but. I watch it every year. Wow, I do. I don't do it every year. I think I might have done it in the last couple of years because I'm like, oh, it just reminded me that it's a solid film. Like the script is tight, mm-hmm. the direct it was well acted. Like you can't can't complain about Home Alone. As we move along, let's get to the top of the charts. These are the top 20 hot R&B chart number one hits of 1990. Tender Love by Babyface, Rhythm Nation by Janet Jackson, I'll Be Good to You by Quincy Jones featuring Ray Charles and Shaka Khan, Make It Like It Was by Regina Bell, Real Love by Sky, It's Gonna Be Alright by Ruby Turner, Where Do We Go From Here? by Stacey Lattisaw and Johnny Gill, Escapade by Janet Jackson, The Secret Garden by Quincy Jones featuring Barry White, Elder Barge, Albie Shore, and James Ingram, All Around the World by Lisa Stansfield, Spread My Wings by Troop, Ready or Not by After Seven, Poison by Belle Biv DeVoe, Hold On by En Vogue, The Blues by Tony Tony Tony, Tomorrow by, again, Quincy Jones featuring Tevin Campbell, you Can't Touch This by MC Hammer. All I Do Is Think of You by Troop. You Can't Deny It by Lisa Stansfield. My, My, My by Johnny Gill. So these are the top 20. And Ashley, looking back on this top 20, what do you think? Rhythm Nation is always a standout for me. And remember also the boys parodied Janet's video in one of their videos. I thought that was so yes. cute. <laughs> Love the energy and the message of the song Rhythm Nation. The Secret Garden by Quincy Jones with Barry White, Elta Barge, I'll Be Sure, James Ingram. I love that. I've always loved that song. Even as a kid, I really, really liked that song. And I forget the award show where they all sang it and everybody lost their mind. Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) That was a moment. Yeah. But I was like, yeah, I can see why everyone's losing it right now because this is a really it's a such such a great slow jam and recently el debarge uh he this was on like you know how youtube they're doing podcasts now mm-hmm. where you have like video and audio so he recently in the past couple of years discussed working with quincy jones on the song and how he worked with him he worked to the bone like on writing the song like quincy did not let did not let up he just he worked him wow. and his final take which you hear on on the album is it was his. It was his only take. It was his. It was what L considered his warm up, and Quincy used that. Wow. Because he. Because but I think the the story went is 
Like they they were working, 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 working to write the song. And then he, he was like, Quincy, I'm tired. I'm going home. He was like, nope, nope, nope. We got to go in the studio. And so <laughs> he was just like, okay, just give me time to warm up then, man. He was like, give me time, man. So he's warming up. And then Quincy's like, great, you can go home now. He was like, but that was just my, like, so that's kind of <laughs> the way he tells the story. Apparently Elle did not like his take on the song, but his is one of my favorites. Right. I was enough. getting ready to say that he, I, first of all, I love Elle DeBarge. And like to, to hear him say this was a warm up, I'm like, really? Because it sounds so <laughs> crisp and so clear and so polished. Mm-hmm. He sounds fantastic on that song. But also, again, a song, another song I was enamored, enamored by was Tomorrow, which was Tevin Campbell's song that Quincy Jones produced. It's my favorite song on Back on the Block, besides One Man Woman, which was sang by Sadia Garrett or hope I'm pronouncing her name right. It's uh, her first Garrett. name is Sadia Garrett. Yeah. I think so. so I I love that song too. But tomorrow is a great single. Oh, definitely. I just thinking about Tevin and just how he how he came out there. I mean, this year this year the 1990 um, year in which Tevin had this single with Quincy Jones, and he also did Round and Round, which was produced by mm-hmm. Prince. And so this was really the beginning of just seeing kind of his immeasurable talent. And I look forward to our future episodes where we get to really talk about Tevin. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course, um, we've talked about this uh, personally off record before, but All Around the World by Lisa Stansfield. Woo! It was another song that I remember hearing before school. There's nothing much else I can say. It's such a great song. <laughs> it's so infectious. Like you, mm-hmm. you can't not sing that song when you, you can't hear it. Sing it. You just can't. It- Exactly. Also, uh, some more honorable mentions for me, Spread My Wings by Troop. I love that song. And of course, Ready or Not by After Seven. Oh, nice, nice. Well, for me, I love seeing Real Love by Sky on the list. I think they are super, super underrated. And that particular song is incredibly underrated. So I would encourage anyone to take a listen to that song. It's a really great slow jam. My, My, My by Johnny Gill. That's like a quiet storm hall of famer in my opinion. Oh, definitely. Ooh, I mean... I still can see the video, which was a little too grown for me at the time, but I still saw it. And Johnny was just singing, singing. Like, I just, I remember being with my parents going on this trip when I was a kid and the song came on. My mom was just all, all in it. She was like, Ooh, that's my song. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, Robin, who is this? Who is this? Sounded like Pennygrass. <laughs> and I was like, That's Johnny Gill. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, that just reminded me like how my parents love some of the stuff that came out during my time. Yes. You know, that that's what feels so different now. I think like they could they appreciated the music that I loved because they could see the legacy and the lineage in it. You're absolutely thank you for saying that. You are absolutely right. What I appreciate about my mother, she always tried to like she want she always wanted to connect with her children. Mm-hmm. She still liked what I was listening exactly. to, more or less. Like she she liked some of the stuff on she liked some of the stuff Brandy did and like yeah. other people. You're you are so right about that. It was different. It's just the connective tissue was there in terms of music. Like my dad mm-hmm. was like, he sounds like Teddy, and that made him like like Johnny and like he really thought he was a great singer, you know. Um but yeah, let's see. Oh, I also love, like, just think about this. So Bobby Brown kind of takes reign in like the 80s and he really blows up. He's a superstar. Don't Be Cruel is one of the biggest selling albums. His tour, he's everywhere. And then you get to 1990 and who do we have? We have Johnny Gill, we have Ralph Tresvant, and we have Belle Viv DeVoe, all members of New Edition, same year on the charts 
who've made really big records. I just find that to be really incredible because I don't know how many R&B groups or groups in general can break up and all the members or just separate and all the members have hits, like major hits um, on the charts. I thought that was really incredible. Yeah, that's a feat I don't think has really happened. Not even the Temptations. I mean, one or two Mm -hmm. members and maybe there's a few members here and there, but I've never seen where all of them become like really big stars in their own right. Yeah, no, I don't even think this happened with the Wu Tang Clan. Not really. Not yeah, not really. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, you have to. I guess from you have to be a serious hip hop head to like enforce that idea for Wu Tang. But like, if you're talking mainstream, probably just hits, right? Like just having a hit. Like all literally had a major hit and a hit album. You're right. A lot of people who are invested in this genre knew these songs easily. Yes, and all of us who who were fans of New Edition were all excited about you know, what what they could do outside of New Edition. I mean, I think that's also interesting, like, you know, Ralph going solo and and Johnny and, you know, Rick, who could who could sing, but people never talked about Rick as a singer the same way they talked mm-hmm. about Bobby or, or Ralph. And so to hear Rick kind of get a chance to be at the forefront of a group was really amazing to me. I also, oh yeah, I also want to go back to the, the Secret Garden. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely a Quiet Storm Hall of Famer, as you pointed out incredible collaboration of artists. And I just want to throw out this really cool, fun fact that I learned. Uh, according to I'll Be Sure, Michael Jackson was supposed to be on this track. So oh, um, gosh, <laughs> can you imagine like Mike would have killed it? Because I love when Mike does his like sensuous, like he does his like soulful balladry. I, I would have loved to hear him on this. How about you? I don't know if Michael's a collaborator uh, <laughs> in this way. So I can't really see it because the comparable song is Lady in My Life off the top. If I'm ripping off, ripping off the top okay, of my yeah, head. He just seems like he's in his own kind of bottle with kind of like singing these kind of songs. So I don't know if him kind of mixing and mashing it up on here. Cause even on We Are the World, like, all I could think, even from back then till now, mm-hmm. I was just like, I just want to hear more of Michael. I really don't care about anyone yeah. else on this track. <laughs> I just want Michael to do the whole song. Maybe that's what would have been interesting, right? Like maybe to see yeah. what he would sound like with El DeVarge and James Ingram. Like maybe to see that. Because I feel like, you know, you're right. I think about the like with the Jacksons, the Jackson 5, he was always the lead right this would have been a different opportunity for him so i i mm-hmm. i would love to hear him sing it but also i like what you're saying to just kind of reimagining an idea of him singing in this type of collaboration would be kind of interesting yeah, i love that you mentioned i'll be sure i think we'll actually he'll probably come up a lot more as we go on with this show but mm-hmm. he i don't think he gets enough credit for his songwriting skills what he's been doing behind the scenes a lot during this, especially during the decade. And also he doesn't get enough credit for his vocals because all that singing these guys are trying to do right now with these voices, trying to do these falsettos and stuff. Like I, I hear like, you know, a lot of influence. Like I feel like it's not just Michael they're being influenced by, but Albie Shore was doing this for a long time too and very well. Um, he was a he was a he had a really great vocal. So let's talk about the Grammys. Airing in 1991, the nominees for the Best R&B Song Grammy of 1990 are My 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 by Johnny Gill, All Right by Janet Jackson, 
Here and Now by Luther Vandross, I'll Be Good to You by Quincy Jones featuring Ray Charles and Shaka Khan, You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer. And the winner is You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer. Lord help me. Um, I'm ready to fight. <laughs> Ashley, um, who would you have selected from this list? And what do you make of this MC Hammer win? I don't accept this. I'm not a Grammy con connoisseur, so I don't know. I've heard people be much more articulate about like the Grammys and questionable choices when it comes to Black artists and music, like how they put people in categories. Better people have said it better than I will ever mm -hmm. do at this moment. But I just, I, I'm trying to understand what something that is considered rap be put into this category like that's what that's what confuses me first of all which is why i don't think this win, win is acceptable <laughs> it, it doesn't make any sense it doesn't because by this time they did have a rap category yes they did so so how does how do you compare you can't touch this with my 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 <laughs> that doesn't make any sense it, it doesn't i mean and and i like i said i the only processing for me in like you said i don't I don't know how they think and operate with categories. Like I'm not a connoisseur in that way either, an expert, but I'm like, is it because of the Rick James sample? Like, is it because it's a sample of Super Freak and they just got confused? I, I really, I really don't know. Um, and we're gonna see a lot more of this um, in the future when it comes to Grammys and award shows in this particular category. Uh, a lot of rap songs or hip hop oriented songs will be nominated and some possibly winning. So it's it's really it's really interesting because I think this kind of goes into the idea that we have in our prologue episode about who gets to name what black people create and mm -hmm. by deciding who gets to name it, they decide who gets to be categorized. That's wild to me, but you're right. That's how I look at this category. Like it's kind of like an example of what we what we're trying to talk about like in terms of what R&B music actually is and what other people think it is. If anything to me, this song is more pop. Yes. than R&B. It's pop rap to me. If I had to give it a category, it's pop rap, but like I said, I don't know how they, the outsider, will see this mm -hmm. and someone who doesn't necessarily might not love R&B, right? Like, I don't know who yeah. is making decisions on the nominations. These people even like R&B, especially at this time. This is still 1990. If I had a choice, it would have been Here and Now by Luther Vandross. Uh, I think that's a more definitive, from my personal opinion, obviously, I think that's more of a, of a definitive R&B song for 1990. I, I know you've talked about it before, maybe on the last episode or maybe in our own conversations about how Luther, he wanted his notoriety and rightfully so. Yeah. He, um, you know, he, he wanted to be known for what he was great at, you know, and he wanted, I think, I guess he wanted everyone to know that he, he seemed to be chasing that number one hit. I think I, I need to do a little more research maybe for our future podcast episodes, but I know that Luther probably like many artists of his stature and during this time, felt underappreciated by their peers, especially peers in the mainstream. And so, yeah, I, I love Luther. Uh, my selection, probably if I could choose the winner for this category, I'd say My, My, My by Johnny Gill. I think it's a great merger of traditional R&B and a new school edge and attitude. Johnny's vocals are just really incredible. I miss that kind of singing. Luther, Johnny, those kind of voices.
So listeners, we are now at the deep dive. In this segment, Ashley and I pick five songs from 1990 and chop it up for a bit. My first pick is Hold On by En Vogue. It's written by Thomas McElroy, Denzel Foster, Terry Ellis, Cindy Heron, Maxine Jones, Dawn Robinson, and produced by Denzel Foster and Thomas McElroy. I just love this song. I remember when I first got the Born to Sing album. It's because, of course, I heard Hold On on the radio and I saw the music video. You know, I just had to hear more. I think what makes En Vogue such an extraordinary girl group of the 90s is that they were there first. Like, this is 1990. I remember them being like the first group I saw in this capacity at the time. I love that the song starts with this acapella from Terry Ellis. She does this, it's an incredible powerhouse arrangement of Who's Loving You, written by Smokey Robinson, but I think immortalized by by the Jackson 5, particularly Michael Jackson. You're like, wait, what, what is what is this? Just like a, a remake of the song? No, because very, very quickly after this, this moment, this crazy, funky bass line just comes in. It's a James Brown sample, of course. And the song is like just edgy and it's got this attitude. Cindy Heron's vocals are just so exquisite. Just the way she sings, the delivery of the song. It's just it's just a really incredible song. I probably could have picked other In Vogue songs from that album, but I feel like sometimes you got to go with the biggest hit. Like that that song mm-hmm. was just crazy. It was just crazy crazy good. And when I think of In Vogue and their impact, you know, just kind of like you start with this group and then you, you're going to see like, you know, SWV and TLC and all these people that come after. But when I think of En Vogue, I'm like, I think of who came before. And I'm like, you see this lineage, like I see the Supremes, I see the emotions, and I especially see the Jones girls when I think of them. Mm-hmm. And like, I love that there's this connective tissue. These women had like these incredibly beautiful harmonies, which reminded me so much of the Jones girls and the emotions. And then you have them singing in this really street, edgy, with this edgy attitude in this uh, very beautiful way. I don't know. I just I just really love this song. Um, Ashley, what do you think of Hold On? <laughs> yeah, even when you talk about influences, I even hear I even hear the Jazzy Fat Nasties who were um, based in Philly as artists, but I think they're from different um, states. I think they're actually from the West Coast. I think they're from California. Okay. But I feel like the Jazzy Fat Nasties also have this. I hear En Vogue in them as well, even though mm. there are, even though they're a duo, they have these very powerful voices, and that's separate. They're very distinct, and they harmonize so beautifully. As far as Hold On, at, oh my God, absolutely! It was everywhere. It was on the radio constantly. All me and my friends at summer camp loved listening to the song. Yeah, I feel like Hold On, Hold On was so ingrained um, in my social world mm-hmm. and then my like music consumption world as well. So I really love the song. I was really taken aback, even as a younger person, with like how strong their voices were, how well they sang yes. together. I was, I was incredibly impressed. I was, it was almost intimidatingly impressed. Really? Um, but I really love their music, and I love that song. Yes. Just one more thing. Like they were so sophisticated. I think that was also really interesting to me. I was just kind of in awe of how sophisticated they look and how like grown up they looked like they had it all together. And I say this because whoever's first, whoever comes out early, the next group 
the next girl group is going to be a complete reaction to that later, which we'll talk about with TLC. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah. like, you know, I, I just wish, you know, I don't know, we don't I feel like we don't talk about certain groups enough. Maybe we don't talk about anybody enough. But En Vogue is definitely deserving of their flowers, their their opportunity to, to be in some type of major sh- some award show where they they get an opportunity to, to be celebrated for all that they've given R&B music. And I think like with this song, you see clearly the beginning of a really promising career in music. Like this song really does set, set it off for them. So my next pick is It Never Rains in Southern California by Tony, Tony, Tony. Written by Timothy Riley, Raphael Sadiq, and Charlie Ray Wiggins. I chose this song because it's just, it really stands out during this period. I feel like Tony, Tony, Tony were just in their own lane completely. For me, they're up there with Jodeci as probably my favorite R&B male group of the 90s, especially got so much love for Raphael Sadiq, who I think is one of the best producers, songwriters in the game. And I also just absolutely love his voice. Listen, just the title stands out. Like you listen to the radio and you hear a song called It Never Rains in Southern California. Like <laughs> you have to think about what what is this even about? But it's an incredibly beautiful song. I mean, like I said, Raphael's vocals, the background vocals, there's poetry in these lyrics. And the arrangement itself is really, really unique. This to me is is like proto-neo-soul. It's not quite the neo-soul we hear with D'Angelo, we hear with Erica Badu and, and Maxwell later on, but to me it has the underpinnings of that sound, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I I also think about this song and it makes me think about Loose Ends. Do you remember that 80s yeah, group? Like I, I totally I do. I feel a little bit of that in this too. Like there's there's something about this type of soulfulness the sound it's almost like an alternative to the r&b of the time of the mainstream and i've also heard folks call this song west coast soul just kind of like a laid back more breezy type of soul music i love that it's just not it just doesn't sound like the mainstream at all it doesn't sound like what's on mtv or what's on bet it's really its own thing and tony 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 have always really to me been their own thing they're really good at like dabbling into what's popular and then they take it and make it their own like it always just sounds like them i find that especially with this song they took a lot of risks musically that nobody was really taking in 1990 and it's just i think it's a dope song how about you absolutely um this is another song that i actually do like i don't know how many songs i'm curious what songs we're gonna like wrestle with each other where we're gonna be on opposite ends but so (laughs) i mean this is the song on the uh, album the revival right yes yes it is yeah, so this is probably my favorite song on that album. I agree with everything that you said. I don't think I have anything else to particularly add because you 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 said everything that I probably would have said again <laughs> when I talked earlier about my appreciation for the newer artists that are doing their that are doing R and B today. It's people like, for example, Devin Morrison, who I I love Devin Morrison. And what did he do recently? He did his own cover of it, Never Rains in Southern California. I love that. See, man. look at that. Yeah, exactly. It's the it's the people who are not like paying homage, but doing their own thing, but it sounds very 21st century. And that's what I love about his music. It sounds older, but it sounds newer and he also can actually sing you actually hear his vocals and in his tracks and that's what I love about him so again this is all attributed to probably he's very much influenced by Tony 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 as well oh definitely I love hearing that these younger artists 
are being influenced by the music of the past and finding new ways to reimagine the sound and bring it into a new generation. So moving on to pick number three, I Just Want to Hold You by Jasmine Guy. Yes, y'all, that <laughs> Jasmine Guy. Whitley from A Different World, Jasmine Guy. She had a self-titled album and the only studio release that she had. I selected the song because I know very few people probably remember that Jasmine Guy had an album and a, some minor hits, I think, on that album. But particularly, I love the song, I Just Want to Hold You. What I remember is going to Harlem with my parents. They used to have all these cassette tapes laid out on the streets and it'd be like four for $20. Yeah, we had the same thing here. <laughs> so you already know. Yeah. That was the first time I purchased it, the self-titled album. And this song, I Just Want to Hold You, was on the album. And I just fell in love with it. Um, the song is written by Melanie Andrews, Tony Andrews, Cal Harris Jr., and it's produced by Rex Salas. It didn't chart, I don't think, until 91. But like I said, 1990s when the album came out, and it's the first time I'd heard it. I don't know. I think it's such a beautiful song. And I, I actually think like Jasmine's voice is just really beautiful on this. It's it's tender and it exuded this warmth. And it was so different from the character that she played on A Different World. I think as well, and maybe a lot of people might remember this, but it was really, really hard for an actor to be taken seriously as a singer. Pre-Brandy, right? It was, mm -hmm. it was hard. I mean, I know Eddie Murphy had a huge hit in the 80s, but I don't think people took him seriously. People did singer. not take him seriously. Right? And then he did that song with Michael Jackson, What's Up With You? And everyone just oh, like, man. man, this clown. They just clowned yeah. him forever about mm -hmm. that. So I, I, I say this to say that I, I think it's, I give Jasmine a lot for trying to, to do this and knowing that, you know, it was really, really hard to be taken seriously as a musician, as well as an actor. I think this song is especially made for like the quiet storm, which like I said, we talked about in our, in our prologue, like we both just really love that quiet storm sound. And so maybe that's why this song just sticks with me the way it does. James Ingram is actually on the song at the very end. He accompanies her and they sound really, really good together. I bring the song up because it's totally an overlooked gem. Were you familiar with this one, Ashley? Yeah, you're right about it being overlooked because I I don't think I was even aware that Jasmine Guy had an album out. So until you had put it down on the books, that's when I was just like, well, let me go to Spotify and check it out. And I'm like, oh, I like this song. Like, I Yay! actually really like it. <laughs> um, so I didn't know about this. It was the same thing when Tisha Campbell, her first album, not the other thing that people make fun of now. I forget she did that. I'm still here. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, man. Poor Tisha. But like the other song that she did like that, you got to push like, yes. that song. But then they did it on Martin. Martin. And, that was... <laughs> and every time so... I hear someone say push, I just think of Martin on the talent mm -hmm. show episode. And I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So, yeah, I think this is why this is, again, pre-Brandy. This is why I think people who could actually sing, but were also more so known for acting, had a hard time. So to, to discover that Jasmine Guy now 
I knew that she sang because I watched her unsung. I think she did. I think it was unsung Hollywood. Yeah, I think you're right. You're right. So I knew that she had an album. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I never knew that. But I never heard I Just Want to Hold You until you had mentioned it. And I was just like, oh, yeah, this is this is nice. And this totally could this is totally Quiet Storm notable. Yay. I love putting people onto that song. So I'm so (laughs) glad you loved it or liked it. Moving on to number four. I like the way Kissing Game by High Five. It was written by Teddy Riley, Bernard Bell, and David Way, produced by Teddy Riley. Okay, so I'm gonna just say it. For me, this is probably up there in my top five R&B songs of 1990. I love it. I love this song so much. It feels like my youth, you know, like if I'm talking like an (laughs) old person, but it just (laughs) feels like it right it just makes me feel it reminds me of when I was a kid it reminds me of this kind of summer day kind of song like I always say to people like this is like a hundred percent cookout jam because it has this kind of breezy summery feel to it there's an innocence to it in, in this way I think that's what really makes it interesting for me so like I look at Hi- high five is a you know a group of teens at this point making music but there's nothing in this song to me personally that feels like it's a teeny bopper or a bubblegum song like I remember everybody liking this song mm-hmm. and everybody acknowledging how great it was to me that's due to Tony Thompson, the late Tony Thompson's vocals, similarly to what you were saying about Tevin Campbell, who dropped round and round this year as well. I think about them having these similar voices. I know they're distinct. I, I can recognize who's who, but there's something that they're both doing to me in terms of like how they approach a song. I find that they have this very similar delivery of like maturity and vulnerability that you don't really hear in a lot of male vocalists this way. I think that's what allows High Five to kind of have this this sound that never comes across as bubblegum or teeny bopper, despite how young they were at the time. There, there really is a timelessness to this song. And when I think about Teddy Riley being the producer of this, it stands apart from his mm-hmm. other like really kind of hard hitting tracks. The New Jack Swing sound was really hard hitting. There was a lot of like hardcore dancing, like, you know, that you had to do. You had to be able to dance to really uh, listen to the yeah. songs. I think what's so beautiful about this song is so dreamy. Like there's a dreaminess to this song. It doesn't have any attitude. It's really just heart. I think, like I said, it has so much to do with, with Tony Thompson's vocals and the way in which Teddy Riley put this track together. When I hear it, I always think of what could have been for Tony Thompson. He did have, a, you know, he had a solo career briefly, but I feel like if he had the right production team, probably would have had a really solid solo career. This song never gets old for me. I think I've heard it a thousand times in my life and I'll probably hear it a thousand more and just <laughs> continue to love it. Uh, how about you, Ashley? Yeah, um, I've been having a hard time trying to not sing the first few lyrics because I love this song so much. All right. And my next pick is All Around the World by Lisa Stansfield, written by Lisa Stansfield, Ian Devaney and Andy Morris, produced by Ian Devaney and Andy Morris. Ashley, Lisa told us that she does not know where her baby is. She said she's going to find him. And you know what? I you when you hear the song, you want her to find him, right? Like there is something so magical about a song that you just have to sing. 
right? Like this song to me is just so infectious. It's a bop. Like when they say, Mm -hmm. when they mention the word bop, like this song is somewhere in the dictionary for real, because it's one to me, one of the best songs of that year. Like I said, my top five, this is up in there in that top five of 1990. Listen, we got a blue eyed soul singer, a British soul singer at that. And if we're going to have a conversation about blue eyed soul and British soul, then Lisa will always be in the conversation. This was everywhere on radio, but like especially Black radio. And we embraced it. We love, I mean, Black listeners love this song. And if you need any evidence, I try to tell people, watch YouTube and look at her performance on the, uh, on the Apollo. The audience was singing louder than she was. That was such a special moment. I think I heard somebody say on Twitter that that song and performance should have cured racism. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I, when you see it, you'll see why they said it. It's kind of incredible, like the way in which she was able to bring this beautiful British soul vibe and this emergent with R&B in this way and create a really phenomenal hit. I think of Tina Marie when I think about when the first time I heard this song. I, I think of, I think about how I don't think anyone knew Lisa was white until they saw the video, right? Like I I I, I always think about that. I know I didn't think she was white until I saw the video because it was on BET and not MTV. For some reason, I wasn't surprised that to see her, that she was white. I I can't take credit for this term, but spicy white like that. I was like, <laughs> okay, that tracks, right? That tracks. <laughs> and when you hear the song. Those eyes are so contagious. Like, how do you keep your mouth closed? You can't. Lisa Lisa is a singer-singer. She has this incredible range. Her her vocals are just really gorgeous. And I remember reading this a few years ago, but apparently the song is kind of a tribute to Barry White, like his orchestration of a song. Mm. If you listen to the orchestration in the song and go play some Barry White, you can really see how, like influenced and inspired she and her she and her husband were apparently to make the song yes lisa was not really looking for her baby she totally made it up she already had a baby she had a man but (laughs) you believed it when you heard it in the song and i love that it's kind of this tribute to barry white's influence because once again we're talking about legacy i think you know what she did with the opening monologue to the song she said that in itself was like what of course what Barry was known for so she was saying that she did that opening monologue as a tribute to Barry White which I think is really dope also I guess we can go back into just saying like this wasn't New Jack Swing this didn't have a like contemporary flair to it but everybody still loved it young people old people it did it it fell into that groove where everybody was just singing it from every age it wasn't geared towards young people it was definitely geared to a mature crowd but i think everybody loved it everybody knew it i I was gonna say i love a good opening monologue um i'm going to talk about uh my one of my favorites a few years down the line when we get to it i'll let you know but yeah this is a really great opening monologue very fascinating that she was influenced by Barry White. Now that you say that, I totally hear it. I hear it in the music. I hear it in the lyrics. And you're right. Young and old. My experience. Everyone loved this song. So 
So for my five picks, I decided to go a little left of center to go with the non-hits, but to go with songs that I think are deserving of recognition and for people to give a listen. So my first choice is Layla Hathaway's Smile, which is from her debut album, which I believe is self-titled. A lot of people know her to be Donny Hathaway's daughter, who I think we've talked about him in the prologue as one of the best singers to ever do the craft, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think Layla lives up to that in her own unique way. So I really, I was put on to Layla Hathaway by a friend's husband a long time ago. And so I started to kind of like dig through her crates and listen to more. Because I think the first song I heard was Forever Always Love. Uh, I went back and listened to more. And Smile is just a very sweet song. Did you listen to the song? Yeah. Have you heard it before? I, you know what? I hadn't heard it before. I wasn't familiar with the song until you chose it and I listened to it. It's a really sweet song. There's there's this kind of breeziness and jazz. It's like a jazzy song, right? And mm-hmm. I love her voice. She is an incredible singer. So it, it's a really beautiful song. The song kind of made me think of the band Incognito, another kind of left of center. Yeah. I really... I, I really dug it because I really like Incognito. So I, I thought it was just really light and airy and really pretty. I think that's, again, very much what we're going to, of course, what was going to be come up, what's going to come up later is this idea of R&B kind of jazz fusion or mix that um, some artists were decided to do during this period. And just kind of like, this is my artistic POV and this is the kind of music I want to do. And so Layla Hathaway, definitely. Yeah. I, and almost all of her albums, she has that incorporated. It sounds like R&B, but it also sounds like jazz mm-hmm. and that, that adult contemporary kind of vibe that we were talking about before. As far as my second choice, I chose Take Six. It's a song called I L-O-V. EU. So Take Six is more gospel and they're acapella. They really don't have uh, instrumentals that are backing them. And this song was produced by Mervyn Warren, who also sang and song wrote for Take Six, but he left in 1991 to pursue producing more. So he's produced for acts like Yolanda Adams, Whitney Houston, As Yet, Queen Latifah, BB and CC Winans, and of course MJ, and mainly inspirational music. So I think that was his mode, like gospel, inspirational, kind of the uplifting song. So Take Six has an accessibility that, again, maybe even echoes a little bit. If you want to, if I wanted to give a comparison, what Boys to Men can do, mm-hmm. and like on a song like It's So Hard to Say Goodbye. So that's kind of what Take Six sounds like if I were to make that comparison. Um, but they're all, but those har- those harmonies is what takes, it's really what has given them, I think, the notoriety that they did have for a, for a period of time. So I just think it's a great song, and that's what I like. I like Put Your Trust in Me Because I Love You, and I just think that's fantastic. I wasn't actually familiar with this one either, but I really I really liked it when I heard it, and I, I was like, I'm so glad you selected it. I, I love the kind of pop doo-wop vibe of it, and I can totally mm-hmm. hear that boys to men, like you said, that comparison, and, and it, it's there. And that was a great comparison. I think it's vocally just so strong. They were singing, singing, okay? Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like anything on the radio from 1990. I mean, these guys are clearly doing their own thing. Um, doesn't sound like, like you said, like what we consider a very, like a, a more traditional gospel style either. It has an accessibility to it, a more pop accessibility to it, I think. 
Yeah, and that's why I think it works very well for me. Next is more of a song that a lot of people probably would recognize who are into this genre, which is Jane Child's Don't Want to Fall in Love. This is one of those songs, again, if you if you know this genre well enough, you hear it and you're just like, oh yeah, I remember this song. Like, I feel like that it's one of those songs that falls into that category. So Jane Child is actually from Toronto, but there was also a New Jack Swing remix, which I didn't know about. And that was produced by Teddy Riley. I thought this was an interesting story about this remix because apparently when Teddy was working on this remix, uh, this was his self-proclaimed career and personal low. He wasn't really feeling good about his music and the business. He did this remix and the success of the remix, the success of the song itself, it helped him realize that music was his purpose. It was where he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to be doing. And I find that really um, fascinating because you think of Teddy Riley and even from the Barry Michael Cooper article, he makes it sound like Teddy Riley was on top of the world his entire career tenure, but that wasn't always true. According to Riley himself, there were some times where he really had some bumps in the road. And so the New Jack Swing remix of Don't Want to Fall in Love, really, it revitalized him. And that's really great to hear. It's always, we talk about this a lot personally, it's always sometimes when we're not feeling great about our art, here comes the universe, whatever you want to call it, given this, it's a person, it's, it's, it's a, it's a acceptance of something. It's a, it's a yes. It's, it's something that tells us, okay, we're on the right track. And so it's really great to hear that this was the song for it because this song is fantastic. And I also wanted to mention about what Barry Michael Cooper said in the article. I love the way he described New Jack Swing. And I wanted to emphasize this because Cooper said it was, quote, a mix of rap, gospel, jazz, funk, go-go, and gothic romanticism by way of synthesizers, end quote. Like, that is, the gothic romanticism took me all the way out when I first I'm read the article. I'm still stuck on it, honestly. <laughs> I think that is so, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Like, that, if, I, if, yeah. you, if you want to elevator pitch New Jack Swing and, like, <laughs> use that use that line and because I just think that's fantastic I never thought of it that way but yeah I, I could totally see that in a lot of the songs and the albums that we hear that we're going to be talking about also uh don't want to fall in love made it to number six on the R&B chart so that's also worth mentioning as well I'm so glad you chose this song <laughs> I love this song and I remember the video so well. But honestly, you know what? The first time I heard this on the radio, I thought it was Taylor Dane. Yeah, I could see that. I just, yeah. I just, it, it just felt like one of her songs, you know, another incredible uh, Blue Eyed Soul singer. But yeah, I just thought it was her. But then I see this video and there's Jane Child, this punk rock looking woman walking down, no, strutting down New York, <laughs> the New York streets, singing like her life depended on it. Shoot, the, the song was huge. I, I really love it. And probably in my category, maybe for one of my favorite one hit wonders of all time. Like, I just think the song is great. My second to last pick is by a singer named Karen Wheeler, and she did a song called Living in the Light. Now, if you don't know the name Karen Wheeler, you probably know the group she sang for, which was Soul to Soul, which did Keep on Moving and Back to Life, Back to Reality. <laughs> That's right. So Karen Wheeler is another fun fact about her is that she sang backup for Phil Collins. 
But oh. yeah, but living in the light, again, it was probably one of those music videos that came on late at night. And the Living in the Light is basically a celebratory song um, about Black people's resilience in the face of the Middle Passage. And these these are the kind of images that the video invokes. It, you see Black people on the shore of a beach, breaking chains, all that kind of stuff. And she, and Karen Wheeler, you could probably also say she is proto-neo-soul <laughs> as well. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I totally put uh, Soul to Soul in that category, Karen Wheeler in that category. I'm really glad you picked this song. I hadn't heard it in a really long time. Mm-hmm. I actually remember it. Like once you, I said, oh yes, Living in the Light. Because I remember it having this kind of, uh, it was R&B, but also had like a dance pop vibe to it, right? Like yeah. it was really a beat, like there's like this real full instrumentation to it. And the thing I loved about Soul to Soul, of course, with Karen Wheeler singing is like, she has such a, kind of a dynamic vocal range. I I just love the way she sings in her very specific style. Right on. Last but not least, The Rude Boys, written all over your face. So funny enough, this is a song. I don't know what it was about this song, but I picked it again because I think it is well worth noting. And also the group's mentor, Gerald Levert, who you know, puts his own imprint on the song in order for people to really, I guess, to perk ears. But the song, would I think, would have done it without it. Um, again, I'm trying very hard not to sing right now because I really want to sing this. It's such a <laughs> good <too>. song. <laughs> it's really great. Listen, Gerald wrote, wrote them a, a hit. Like, this is such a great song. But he also, in my opinion, he totally hijacks the song from them. <laughs> like, <laughs> Gerald, Gerald sing. He was singing like his rent was due. Like, I'm like Gerald, <laughs> did you have to go this hard? But yes, he did, because that's what we know of Gerald Levert, and that's why we love him. And that's why, you know, to me, this song, yeah, it, it probably would have been a hit regardless, because it is kind of this really contagious, like, bop that we hear. The, the, the tempo, the vibe of the song is it's really um, infectious. You want to sing it when you hear it. But I also think, like, Gerald putting that extra sauce on it, you know, it it, it does make it makes the song even better. Like, I, I love that Gerald sang like that on it. And I love that he, you know, gave them this this really, really great song to kind of stand out in. Absolutely. our legacies segment. With our legacy segment, we just want to have longer longer discussions about recording artists, careers, albums, moments, and movements in the 90s, trying to add nuance and to contextualize music history for y'all. Because this music history is massive and we can't dismiss it. Let's embrace it and all its complexities. For the first segment, I really want to discuss Tina Marie and the Ivory album. Just to give listeners a quick history of Tina Marie, because I can't assume everyone listening is familiar with her. Tina Marie is perhaps the most Black famous white artist of all time. And it's hard to explain this relationship, actually kinship she has with Black music fans. We see her as family. It's just different with Tina. Rare that a white artist is mostly known and adored by a Black fan base and few white people know or acknowledge her. Like that imaginary cookout that Black folks keep inviting their favorite white folks to? Well, Tina needs no cookout invite. She's already there with your aunties talking trash at the space table. <laughs> she is, <laughs> it's true. She is one of my favorite vocalists of all time. 
a favorite artist who I've only grown to love and appreciate her music more and more over the years. Some of my favorite songs ever actually are Tina Marie songs. Uh, Ashley, you have any Tina Marie reflection before we get down into it? Tina Marie is like none other. And she's, again, she's so celebrated. I heard her music long before I saw her face. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't me just hearing her music, but I also very much enjoyed it. I love the disco elements to it. I love Mm -hmm. her collaborations with Rick James, but I also love the uplifting kind of spirit in her vocals and in her lyrics as well. No, you no, it's it's true and and I, that's why I was really, you know, excited to actually talk about her in this piece because we're talking about lineage and legacy. So she started with Motown and was mentored by Rick James during her rise. She is most known for her post-disco era hits like I Need Your Lovin', It Must Be Magic, and her sultry ballads like Portuguese Love, Irons in the Fire, and of course, her duet with Rick James, Fire and Desire, which is an earth-scorching ballad, to put it mildly. One of her biggest Black radio jams in the 80s was Square Biz. Her only crossover hit was Lover Girl, which peaked at number four on Billboard in 1984. And you all may be familiar with her song, Ooh La La, which was sampled by the Fugees. 1990 was a strange time for many artists who were most prominent in the 80s. So many artists had a hard time finding their footing in the 90s. Tina Marie was one of them. This is the year she released the album Ivory, which was seen as a critical and commercial flop. So when I went back and listened to the album to do a reassessment, it may have been a commercial flop, but there are a few of my favorite Tina Marie ballads on here. If I Were a Bell and Miracles Need Wings to Fly. I think perhaps what may have been jarring for her fans at this time was her attempt at New Jack Swing. With some fan bases, they don't want their artists to change too much or take too many risks. They rely on them for a certain sound and feeling. I don't think the up-tempo stuff works as well as the ballads. I think this happens with so many artists as they try to transcend new decades. Things change, and what changed most in the 90s was technology, which I believe really affected the way artists would sound. I think it's super hard for artists to figure out how to remain relevant in a new era and also stay true to themselves. This perhaps was the period where Tina Marie was wrestling with this. Ironically, I think of the two white artists we both brought up, Lisa Stansfield and Jane Child, who both had breakout success on Black radio and the pop charts with their contemporary R&B. Lisa more traditionally, and Jane with a new Jack Swing approach. Somehow, Tina Marie couldn't find her footing in this. And we also have to think about the label she was on and what kind of pressure she might have been under. Any thoughts, Ashley, on the Ivory album? I had no knowledge of this album. If I Were a Bell played on the radio. So I knew that song, but I never attached it to an album. When you talked about bringing this particular album up, I went back and listened. Like you said, Ivory sounds like very much of its time. So listening to it, I wasn't confident with the combination of Tina's voice with the overall artistic style, Mm -hmm. because it just just didn't mesh well for me at all. So Just Us Two was the other only track on that album that I actually, that I liked. And I'm like, oh, okay, this sounds more like her, but but it also still sounds like it's very 1990. But also what I want to mention, which I think is very important for people to, if they want to do more digging, uh, musician and writer Tim Dillinger and Craig Seymour, they had a conversation about Tina called Cultivating Blackness, a conversation about Tina Marie. And this was on Craig's podcast that's still available. And I bring it up because the essay that 
sparked this conversation, the inspired it was Tim's personal essay on Tina Marie Remembrance, which is what the essay is called. And he did it for soulmusic.com. And it's about Tim's personal relationship with Tina and her music. And I just, it's such, first of all, the essay, don't read it if you're in your feelings, because <laughs> it really will bring you to tears. He, Tim is such a phenomenal writer and their conversation is so complex and layered. They really dig into what Tina means as far as identity, as far as music, as far as even the business of entertainment itself. And so I just, it's going to be linked obviously in the show notes, but please do yourself a service and listen to that conversation. Now, I'm glad you brought that up. There there are so many layers uh, when we do discuss Tina Marie and her music. That's why I really wanted to to bring her up in this legacies portion, because I remember when I first heard the album and I was like, wow, this is 1990. I, I remember I remember assuming it, it came out in the 80s just because I've, you kind of forget like how people's careers have these trajectories. And I knew if I were a bell, I knew, uh, I think it's just us two. I knew those songs. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh, putting into this context of this album is really interesting. Like I said, I think the album is just really uneven. Like you really do feel a lot of Tina in it, but you also feel like there's like a lot of pressure to sound as con- to sound contemporary uh, yeah. in a way that maybe wasn't true to how she maybe wanted to sound. Like I said, I always think about record labels and the kind of pressure they would put on artists during those times. But I'll say before we get to the next segment is what's so fascinating is that Tina Marie does eventually return to Black radio in a major way and with a critically acclaimed album. But it happens in 2004 and on Cash Money Records. (laughs) So eventually she found a way to bring what fans loved, but also add this like contemporary flavor to her sound. And we miss Tina Marie around here. I know I do. She's very, very well missed, very heavily missed. That's why she's so revered by black folks like she just does it she does r&b and disco and and soul music so well oh, well with such and an appreciation for it yeah and that's just an understatement truly truly moving on whitney houston as she attempts to redefine her career in 1990 with r&b after backlash tina marie is the extremely rare white artist who had this immense adoration from a Black fan base. And on the flip side, there's Whitney Houston, a Black artist who during this time had a far more complicated relationship with Black music listeners. Let's first just say it. Whitney Houston was one of the greatest singers on the planet. No one can take that from her. We talk about God-given vocalists. When we talk about someone who came out of the church, with that ability to convey spiritual conviction in any song, we are talking about Whitney Houston, hands down, an untouchable vocal force. And with that being said, I think so much of the tension of her early career has been about the expectations of having this dynamic vocal ability translate into pop appeal and success. I think what we see in the early 80s with the album, this producer Clive Davis hell bent on making Whitney this huge pop sensation. And I've always said my favorite Whitney songs are her R&B songs. And I'm thinking many Black listeners of that time probably felt the same way. But woo, 
times were different and much crueler because there were so many impossible expectations on Black celebrities. Wait a minute. Maybe times haven't changed that much. <laughs> but back then, and I guess now, the bigger the celebrity, the more impossible the expectations. And as a kid during that time, I was far too young to understand all of this. So I was shocked by her being booed by some audience members at the 1988 Soul Train Awards and folks calling her Whitey Houston. A lot of Black people saw her as a sellout, criticized for not being Black enough or being soulless. Now remember, other Black artists were having pop success then as well. You had Michael, Prince, and Janet, to name a few. But somehow, Whitney was singled out as being a sellout. And as we know now from all the books and the documentaries and the TV films, this deeply devastated her. She never wanted to lose her connection to Black audiences. In 1990, it seems that she worked to get that connection back. The song, I'm Your Baby Tonight, felt like an attempt to play to Black audiences and to mainstream audiences at once. Did she succeed? Well... I'll say that her working with Babyface and L.A. Reid was a match made in heaven. I'm Your Baby Tonight, the song skyrocketed on the R&B charts and the pop charts. She sounds very soulful on this. Even when I remember the video, she looked edgier. It's interesting that Whitney knew the way to reclaim her connection to Black music listeners was through R&B, which meant getting back on Black radio. I love the song and her vocal gymnastics on the song are just glorious. Much was shifting in R&B during this time as well because Poison by BBD came out this year too. I'm Your Baby Tonight sounds a bit out of step with that when you think about it. But at the same time, I think Whitney possibly felt assured by being back strongly on Black radio. Like the song did what it needed to do. The song knew the assignment, right? We'll see more of Whitney during this decade and her evolving relationship to R&B. And I look forward to speaking more about that as the time comes. Ashley, your thoughts on Whitney Houston during this time? Uh, what did you think about I'm Your Baby Tonight? I'm Your Baby Tonight was the first Whitney Houston song that I definitively remember actually liking. I've gained a bigger appreciation for Whitney as an, as an adult. I'm also astronomically and fervently empathetic to her as well. I think there was this intuitiveness that Black audiences, more or less, some more than others, had about the inauthenticity of it all. I think we saw her as this, we saw her as a Barbie doll that was taken off the shelf and put in a music video. And I could really, she could sing her butt off. She could always sing, but she seemed so marketed. She seemed more like a product and not a person. And then that particular group of people at at the Soul Train Awards, that's what they were booing. They were booing the, the the idea that she wasn't, this wasn't who she really was. This is like, why are you, like the idea of quote selling out, if you could say that. And, but I don't, but, you know, looking back now, I don't think Whitney had much of a choice. I think she was just kind of like mm -hmm. going with what was going to propel her career. And I say that because like, I feel like Michael, everything Michael did was Michael. Like he, like it, nothing seemed un, inauthentic about Michael's different directions and what he did with his career. And who was going to tell Prince to be anything he was not? That was <laughs> not going to happen in any way, shape, form, or fashion. It just kind of kills me. And I think it's so sad that this orbit around Whitney engineered this image of her that kind of stifled her creativity and authenticity. If I have, a, if I were to throw out this wild theory, I feel like those boos, I think that helped Whitney. And what I mean by that is, I think she used that to leverage 
the losing of listeners. I think she was like, well, they don't like me, so you're going to let me do what I want to do, and I'm going to get all those listeners back and keep the listeners that I already have to even Mm. propel myself even more. And so I think that's why we get an I'm Your Baby tonight, because I think that's a beautiful fusion of this can be crossover, but this also sounds very much like the sound that would that appeals to black listeners during this time and that's just my theory no i i really love that theory and i also think about it for myself i mean i have a very different experience with whitney i really like i loved her r&b stuff i think my first favorite whitney song is you give good love i think it's still actually probably still my absolute favorite whitney song i think it's just vocally amazing and i, I love how soulful it is but yeah it's it's to me it's so interesting um how we look at someone's career in retrospect versus how we have lived it and watched it as time has gone on. And I notice, you know, the way in which she's discussed in retrospect is so different than how she was received during the time that we were growing up. Right. And I, I liked her music, but more on a surface level at this point, right? Like the hits came on and I enjoyed them. I think my, my deeper appreciation grew as she continued to make music, I mean, this is before I Will Always Love You, right? Mm-hmm. So she hasn't even had that yet. And it's almost hard to think about Whitney before that moment because I, the I Will Always Love You bodyguard period is really defining of Whitney's career, right? And what she was able to do after that. But yes, I, I deeply feel for Whitney and what she has gone through. I think I chose to highlight this particular segment because I thought it was really important to remember. It wasn't always, she didn't always receive the love that she should have, right? She she wasn't always able to be the, the person that we remember. Like you said, at one point, it felt very boxed in. It was very image conscious and she had to sound this way and look this way. And when she got with Bobby, it's like the gloves came off, right? (laughs) Like she just got a whole nother version of her and the version of her we got felt so much more accessible. And I think that's the version of her for me, even though she was wrestling with these things, you felt like you kind of, okay, this is who Whitney is. This is how you, th- we, we knew her. There's this attitude. There's this thing that we're familiar with suddenly. I hearken back to, like I said, I'm your baby tonight, just because I feel like there's a very interesting thing happening here where you're seeing a transition in how she's seeing herself in music as someone who wants to make sure she does not lose her Black fan base. When she did that cover of I'm Every Woman, I was like, this is it. Like I, I have deprived myself of Whitney too much. <laughs> and we will never again be talking about that. <laughs> never again. Cause I, I, first of all, obviously I love the original, but when she did that cover, oh my, I was in love. I was in love. That's it. And like I said, listeners, we are definitely going to be covering <laughs> I'm every woman for real. Cause that, yeah, that's, that's next level. As we're talking about all of these particular artists who were trying to find their footing in this new decade, there's one artist that didn't waver at all. That Detroit attitude, that grit, I will mention that term again, is is very steadfast. And that's Anita Baker. That's Compositions. That's that album that I personally feel is her best. I'm going to argue that is her best album. She once asked herself, how do I do something different yet maintain my style? And she asked herself this before recording the album. This album that would openly embrace her listeners like a warm hug on a brisk day 
and usher us into a new decade with a familiar flair but elevated approach. While a good share of artists who peaked on charts and airwaves in the 1970s and 1980s saw collaboration with producers who heralded an era of a more youthful and upbeat sound, you had Anita Baker, with all of her grit and possible perfectionist tendencies, embrace the wide open lane to flourish further upon her previous exemplary pieces, Rapture and Giving You the Best That I've Got. Baker's fourth Grammy-winning platinum-selling masterpiece, Compositions, was another successful collaboration with her producer and musician, Michael J. Powell, experimenting with these old-school recording techniques like singing live along a rhythm section, on-site songwriting, which Baker was heavily involved in, and she's noted herself, it gave her a confidence that she didn't know that she had. And it shows. For all of her methodical and focused, these are Baker's words, planning to create this work, she understood the risk of not being pop or having a hit list of tracks. Give it time to sink in, she suggested. Compositions is, again, transformative for me because I am her target listener. More so as an adult, but you get my drift. All nine songs are immersive and demand an attentive journey. And Baker's lack of concern about fitting a timely sound, letting her work breathe with a and say something low-key attitude is exactly the kind of approach that fits my own personal ethics, which is why I love this album and I love Anita. So Robin, do you have any thoughts on compositions? Do you remember it from 1990 specifically? Okay, so I love compositions. A few of my favorite Anita songs are up there, like Talk to Me, Whatever It Takes, and Fairy Tale. She sounds at the top of her game on this album. It's intimate, it's personal, it's also really grown. So for me in 1990, I definitely wasn't the, the, the listener that she was looking for, of course, but I grew to appreciate this. I remember one of my friends, her mom loved Anita Baker and played her a lot. So I just was like hearing Anita at that time, but not really taking it in, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. until I got a little older. So I really grew to appreciate her as I got older and the significance of her music and how much I really began to, to really love her music. I mean, I was a fan from Rapture. I love that this album doesn't feel like anything else in 1990. We discussed this immense pressure that artists were facing who were coming out of the 80s and into the 90s, trying to incorporate, as we've said, a more youthful sound. And there's Anita Baker, you know, she's the queen of the quiet storm and she's doing the opposite. She's making the music she wanted, the way she wanted. I think that's amazing. So I heard it through the grapevine. This is a segment where we're just going to be talking about these kind of fun little stories. So Robin, what you done heard through the grapevine? <laughs> well, I done heard that Babyface originally wrote My, My, My for After Seven. As you know, two of the members of the group are his brothers. And apparently because they were late or they didn't arrive to the studio on time, the song was given to Johnny Gill, <laughs> which became, of course, a huge hit for him. Now, I'm actually glad this happened. Not that After Seven wouldn't have done the song justice. I think they would have sung it well. But Johnny Gill and what this song did for him and his career, I mean, I feel like some things happen for a reason, you know? Yeah, it's so funny how many accidents happen when you're working, when you're a creative person. The things that, like, things that feel or seem intentional that become 
this these big successes could just be complete circumstance and fate. Like it's just it just so happened that this didn't happen or that happened. And I just find that really fascinating, honestly. The creative process is really a mystery. <laughs> it is. So my story is a story that I've come to really love. I've been looking a bit more at Tony Terry recently. And you all know um, that song that I mentioned last last episode, his song With You, is a really fantastic ballad. And it was released in 1990. But the reason we have the video is because of Anita Baker. So I think the story goes, she heard it in the middle of the night and it woke her up. And you know, she was able to contact Tony directly and she was on the phone with him. She was like, this song is so beautiful. And when's the, when's the video coming out? And he was like, they don't, there's no video, there's no budget. And she was just like, well, not on my watch. And she (laughs) uh, made sure Blair Underwood was the director and she wrote the check for the video for $50,000. She gave the whole the video, its entire budget. And she became, and she became the executive producer of the video. So again, wow. I, I love that because an artist who believes in another artist and is so inspired by their own vocals and effort and talent and just decides to go, I'm going to make sure that more people hear this because it's so great. I love hearing that. I love, makes me love Anita Baker even more. The only rumor, you know, I heard about this song and I'm not sure if it's true, but that Tony Terry wrote this song for his daughter. And so I was like, that just adds an extra sense of sweetness to this song, which is already just so beautiful. I mean, I really do love this song. But yeah, I don't know if you heard that, that he wrote it for his daughter. I don't, maybe in passing, but that little note, that little fact didn't stick. But it makes me think, and I know we're going to bring, I know we're going to mention them later, but I do want to mention it now because it's very much in lieu and piggybacks on what you just said. But isn't that the same thing about the song joy by black street like they wrote it for their children yeah Yeah, or one of them wrote it for one of their kids interesting about them yeah Yeah, i I almost like i've heard that okay yeah we'll have to bring that up again Mm -hmm. so that was 1990 if you are interested in learning more please visit rhythmandschooledpodcast.com for our archive of shows notes and references for your own independent schooling and get to know us we fly our email is the 411 at rhythmandschooledpodcast.com if you have feedback and want to speak out on your favorite R&B artists of the 90s we'll be sure to read and share on the show eventually and on Twitter and possibly even Hive follow the flow at 90s R&B pod again that is at 90s R&B pod. We will have all those links available to you as well. And to hear curated mixtapes for each episode, find them exclusively on Spotify. Until next time, peace, everybody. Peace. <laughs>